You know, many of the big questions in life have answers. I mean, they have real answers, real concrete answers. And they're answered in Scripture. Now, I'm not just talking about spiritual questions or things about your religious life, so to speak. I'm talking about also questions that are of a scientific or a historical nature. Questions like, where did we come from? In fact, if we cannot trust the Bible's accuracy on things like science and history, how can we then trust the Bible with greater questions about life and death? Let's just spend a moment on that first question I asked. It's a good one to start with. Where did we come from? Well, if you look to men today, men who are often referred to as scientists, you will find that they have no answer. Now, I'm not talking about they don't have a theory. I'm not talking about they don't have some things that they've researched about the topic. I'm not talking about they haven't written a book on the subject or 10 books or a 1,000 books. I'm saying they don't have an answer. Scientists weren't there at the beginning. They haven't observed everything that went on. And whatever observations can be made now can only test certain theories that they may have about what happened then. There's only one eyewitness account. And there's only one who can tell us what happened for sure. And the wonderful news is that God was there and God chose to reveal what happened at the beginning. Whatever evidence we have today should be seen. I'm talking about, about the question about where did we come from. Any evidence we have today should be seen in light of whatever he said. And you know, he gave us a lot of profound details about where we come from and what happened at the beginning. Chief among them was that he created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, including us. And he created everything out of nothing by just speaking. Also, he did it in six literal days, resting on the seventh day. We also know, based on some detailed records that are kept for us throughout the Old Testament, that we live on a young earth. And after that earth, those earth and heavens were created by him, he declared them very good. And it was only after Adam's sin that death came about and that the destruction that sin causes began to come about. So not only does Genesis answer the question of where we came from, but in doing so, it answers several other big questions about life and about meaning and about death and about suffering. 
And it really answers the question. It doesn't just give us a series of theories that have been tested with a, a series of experiments. It gives us actual answers. It also does something else. It refutes many very popular, very well-accepted worldly theories, the kinds of theories that actually lead men away from God. The Bible is trustworthy. And so whatever men say, whatever they assert based on their own study, must be seen through the lens of Scripture. All evidence on questions of origin and on questions of history need to be filtered through its text. We don't make judgments about the Bible based on what the world tells us. We make judgments on what the world tells us based on the Bible. You see the difference there? I was listening to someone not too long ago talk about their idea of Christianity as they saw it being deconstructed in their lives. And the deconstruction began, as they told it, as they began listening to people. And they said, well, that person's smart. Well, that person holds this position. Well, that person has done this research. Well, that person has written this book. And it reflects so poorly on the Bible. Do you see what went wrong there? Instead of the judgments of man being filtered through Scripture, we have Scripture being tested by what man says. It's exactly the wrong way to go about it. I wonder if some of us might struggle with this level of trust that is needed in Scripture. I mean, I just told you something. I said, whatever men say, filter that through what the Bible says. I wonder if we believe that what we see and what we hear and what we observe based on our own intelligence will persuade us more. I think we at, at least at some times think this. Should something just beyond these words that we read convince us more about what the answer is? I mean, is there anything that should convince us beyond what Scripture just says in black ink on white paper? Well, the Bible gives us some examples, actually, of people who thought something else, whatever it was, something else could be more persuasive. I think of a man who was rich. And the Bible actually tells the story about how he was in torments of hell. And he had concern for his five brethren also going to hell and experiencing these torments that he was in. And while he's there experiencing the reality of hell, he's convinced that his brothers should be told by someone 
to avoid this same fate. And that's where I want to pick up the story, and I'll just read this to you, okay? Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The words of Moses and the prophets just didn't seem enough to persuade, according to this man. Something more was needed. If someone could have proven that they had raised from the dead, this would have provided just that little bit of extra assurance. The experience, certainly, of of seeing a risen person, I mean, would have had to have some effect, according to this logic. This something more. But Abraham says no. If they will not believe the message of God, the message that he purposefully and providentially sent. I mean, this is the way God intended it. He said, I am going to send you Moses and the prophets, and they are going to say things about the Messiah that will point you to him. And you may be seeing him afar off, but this is the way I have providentially and purposefully given you to recognize your own sin and to see that there is salvation from this torment and this flame. And so if what God sent specifically did not persuade, then even someone who rose from the dead would not persuade. John 20 has another account that might help. You'll remember this one. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after Jesus was raised from the dead. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see his hands in the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, again, the disciples were within and Thomas with them. And then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. 
Now, Christ's grace and mercy is on display here. But all those of us who have believed after Jesus ascended have believed based on what? On the word of God. We've not had an experience to persuade us. Certainly not one like this. Our belief is based on the written word of God, and we trust it fully. It's a book that educates the believer beyond any of man's wisdom. See, because even this information, this information that brings us to the point of saving faith, is far beyond man. It's beyond any collective understanding of man. Most of what we have in education, since we're talking about study and education today, that's outside of any kind of scriptural idea, is really about collective wisdom of man over time. But the word of God is is beyond even that, because it's truth. There's some wonderful details about what the word of God can teach. And I want to start in Psalm 119, 97. Psalm 119, 97 through 106. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time tonight. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies for they are ever with me. For a person that's in the midst of trouble, in this case, a person who's surrounded by enemies, the word of God is critical. It offers wisdom beyond anything that an ungodly person has the ability to find. They have um, power over you, perhaps your enemies, They have might or numbers or experience that allows them to have power over you. But we then have the instruction of Almighty God. This is why the person in a scenario like this can declare with confidence, I love thy law, which is what happened here. Because it provides a platform, at least for survival, in a situation like this, but often for victory. And that makes it worthy of meditating upon all day. It's used for reflection by the reader. It's an object of their study. During not just a portion of the day, but all day. That's actually what this is is talking about. If enemies are ever near, then the follower of God must be ever ready, prepared in mind and in heart to act in accordance with God's will. This wisdom is really far beyond the wisdom of men. That is the wisdom of any enemy that faces us from Satan to tyrant kings, to any other group of oppressors. Do you understand what I'm saying here? In this passage, he was surrounded by enemies. And he said, 
I'm relying upon your wisdom in this situation. That means there is something that he is going to know based upon what God said that can at least um, allow him to survive or make him victorious, no matter who is on the other end or how many of them there are. His intelligence, if he follows what God says, can be above what their intelligence is. And all that intelligence that God has decided to give, he's passed along directly to us. What else does this kind of reflection on the word provide? Verse 99 and 100, Psalm 119. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Did you notice what he said first here? Through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies. And now it says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Now we've sort of gone beyond just the situation you're in at the time and the pressures that surround. And he says, I I have more understanding than my teachers because I'm meditating on what you said. And I understand more than the ancients because I've kept thy precepts. There's no teacher in the world that knows more than God. There's no teacher that can communicate with more effectiveness than God. It's not that teachers have nothing good to say. The fact is, if they point us to him, they have a great deal of good things to say. But nothing beats going directly to the source. The same is true of anyone who was a teacher from ages gone by. People who are old or who've already died and they've left us their writings in in one way or another or their wisdom in whatever collection they've left it. Any number of them may have been really helpful to us, but going directly to God and acting in obedience to what God says is best. Verse 99 talks about understanding. And that word is referring to something. It's referring to insight and prudence. That's what study can provide, insight. Verse 100 says understand, but it's a different word. It means discernment. To be capable of distinguishing. When we have insight and when we can discern, we're capable of going about living in godliness. I would really argue that insight and discernment are keys for any kind of successful walk through life. Insight and discernment. So it's no surprise that this text declares that we find both in the testimonies of God. Specifically on meditating 
on the testimonies of God and on obeying them. But this only comes when we deeply consider and we give careful attention to. And then when we deeply consider, when we give careful attention to, that results in actions. Because did you notice it? It says these two things several times together. It says, I've meditated on, I've come to understand what your testimonies are, and then I've also obeyed them. That's how you have discernment. And it's how you have insight. Verse 101. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. The Bible, in our desire to be obedient to it, can give us all kinds of instruction and information on how to keep from doing things that are wrong. That's when we know and when we internalize what it says. When we understand that some not doing is pleasing to God, we know that instinctively. There's some things that you don't do that's pleasing to God when you don't do them. This verse indicates when we're circumspect and when we avoid the traps of Satan, we have the opportunity to go on in obedience as we're not hindered and we're not weighed down. Scripture just has this ability to keep us on the right path. And obedience to Scripture, obedience to what God says, can be habit-forming. God teaches us through the Bible, and he works in us through his Holy Spirit. And he can keep us on this straight path, this narrow path. It's the kind of path the Bible describes as being the one that leads to eternal life. And this is far beyond any kind of education that any book of man can provide to us. Because the education comes directly from God. Did you notice what the passage says? Thou hast taught me. We're talking about study and education tonight. It's this kind of learning and this kind of living that's a delight to us. We talked about the fact that God is pleased with us not doing some things, but it's a delight to us when we live this way. Verse 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. The more we partake of God's word, the sweeter it seems to become to us, while falsehood becomes bitter. There's no experience greater in the world than being enlightened by Scripture and then that having an effect on who we are and what we do. But that which is against Scripture, which is against God, is to be hated, is to be rejected. There's no understanding in the false way. God's precepts help us define and discern 
and distinguish. And don't we need that so often? When we come to a, a place where we have to make a decision or we have to we have to determine what we believe on something, because we're so well acquainted with God's word and obedience to it, we're able to distinguish and we're able to discern. Through God's word, we know the difference between truth and falsehood. But this learning and this growing is accomplished in us for a reason. That's the next verse, verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep thy righteous judgments. Were you aware of all the context that this verse, probably the more famous verse of the bunch, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, came in. It's interesting. We're going to need a light in this world. Things can get dark quickly and almost instantly. There's going to come moments where not even the next step can be seen. Not even the path just ahead of us. Too dark for that. And so God's word shows us where to safely step on the path. You say, how, how, does, how does that work? Well, it's not going to work if you are not deeply committed to finding what it says, to understanding what it says, to applying what it says, and then to doing what it says. That's how it works. It can show us where to safely step. It can show us where to securely step. It can show us how not to get off course and how not to fall if we get off course. Why would we then not commit ourselves without reservation to what it says and to obeying what it says? Because a victorious life, a joyful life, demands righteousness. And there's no such thing as righteousness in a person's life without the word of God. There's no way to live successfully or live rightly without knowing what God's word says and doing it. God's word does something more than just relaying the facts of the world. Talked about at the beginning, relaying the facts scientifically and historically. It certainly does that, but it does more than that. It tells us what they mean and why they are important. Remember, if the Bible cannot be trusted on that which is scientific and historical, then I cannot be trusted on spiritual matters. But God's word doesn't simply relay facts scientifically and historically. It tells us what they mean. It tells us why they're important. It tells us how to live in light of them. I want to provide a few tips, if I can, on how we can develop a deeper understanding from what God's word tells us. Because I think they'll, um, they'll help um, somebody who's just starting out 
to learn how to study. And I think there'll also be a reminder to those who've had studied the Word of God for many years. Um, these are principles that are not just mine. They're principles that I take into account every day, but they've been passed along to me. And, and there are passages of Scripture, actually, that I won't have time to get to tonight, that, that give us an idea of what these principles are. But since we're talking about study and education, I think these are some things that we should take into account when approaching any Bible text. Seven things to consider when you're approaching any Bible text. Always consider the immediate context of the passage. I mentioned it when we got to that phrase, that verse, Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's an amazing context that it's in. Gives you a lot of insight on what it's talking about. You got to read carefully the passages that precede and the passage that follow the text that you're in. Do that. Don't miss that one. It's one of the most important things there is. You want to discover how that context, whatever's before, whatever's after, can alter your thinking about that main text. Because sometimes it does. I, I found this, I don't know how many numbers of times, where I've looked at a passage and I thought, I know what that means. And then you realize as you read what's before it and what's after it, that you get some information that alters your thinking on the passage. It does. The immediate context is really important. I would say this, only extract a verse from its context when it's appropriate to do so. Okay, I'm not saying don't ever take a verse and just use it on its own. Obviously, we have to. But take a verse and use it on its own when it's appropriate, when you're being honest about it, when you know what comes before and what comes after, and you can carefully and thoughtfully take it out and use it. It's not a good idea to do it the other way around. What about this? Always consider the historical context. This one's a little bit tougher. There are ways to find details on lots of things about Scripture. You can find details about the time period that that particular Scripture is coming from. You can find things about that city or that region or that area that's mentioned. You can find things about the people that are mentioned. You can find things perhaps about a cultural practice that you don't understand. You ever come across those and thought, why in the world were they doing that? Old Testament especially, you come across something and you think, I don't know why they're doing that or what that means or why that has any significance, and you wouldn't. We need to search for these kind of details. There's a, a bunch of materials that are available to us. I talked about it in the Blue Letter Bible in a previous lesson, and there are other books and things that you can get to help you gain that kind of perspective, some sort of a historical perspective, so that you're not believing something to be the case without actually knowing that that's the case. Because there's all those details that you may need to learn. 
So try to get that. Then I, I say it this way. Consider, always consider, the entire Bible context. So you have the immediate context, you have the historical context, and then you also have the entire Bible context. I'm going to give you an example of that in a minute. This is what you find. Sometimes a confusing passage can seem like a one-off. Right? You look at it and you go, oh, that seems to say something different than the rest of the Bible says. Oh, well, I'll just go with it. It's possible to do that. Actually, what could be happening is because you're not considering the entire Bible context, it's giving you a wrong idea about what God is saying about that particular passage. If there are some what seem like contradictory statements, you need to find out why it's a uh, contradictory statement. There shouldn't be any. So you need to find out why. Never come to final conclusions based on one verse alone. Now, make no mistake here. There are passages where there's only one verse telling us something. There are. But don't come to a a more grand conclusion about a number of things based on one verse. I could give you a couple examples, but let's, let's move on. There's actually a good example of this that I want to read to you, okay? It's from Acts 16, and it's from the story of Paul and Silas. So listen to this, and, and I'll explain what I, what I mean about coming to conclusions, maybe the wrong ones. Paul and Silas, when they had laid many stripes upon them, they were beating them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailers to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in stalks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself. Supposing that the prisoners had been fled, he was in big trouble if the prisoners were gone, right? You can see how that would be the case. So he would have killed himself. But Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a pretty clear question. Now here's the clear answer. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. So, here's what we determine from that. If one person in your family believes in Christ, then the entire rest of the family is automatically saved too. Right? Right? 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and all your family will be saved too. You see how something can be confusing? If you don't know the, the whole Bible context? What do we know about the remainder of the scriptures? Actually, reading on might help too. Look at what it says as we read on. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. And to all that were in his house. So they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. What do you think actually happened here? We can tell you how to be saved, and we can tell everyone else in your house, every one of your family members, how to be saved. And if all of you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then all of you will be saved. Hey, we know that based on what the Word of God says about salvation. That's a whole Bible understanding of context that allows you to get to a passage that says something a little bit different, and you can say, wait, I understand what that must mean because of what I know about the rest of Scripture. The next thing, properly define words and phrases. Properly define words and phrases. It doesn't matter what translation you're using. I use different translations all the time, and and I was using the ESV, one day, reading from the ESV, and I, I didn't quite know what the King James Version meant. And so I went to the ESV and sort of relied upon it and thought I understood what the word in the ESV meant. And then I realized as I was going along, I don't think that means what I think it means, and I don't think that it means what the translation says right now. I, I don't think that that uh, they were wrong in their translation. I think that there's an understanding in my mind that was slightly different than the word that they meant in the passage. So you've got to properly define the words and phrases. That means you're going to have to use some tools that you have at your disposal for defining those original languages. Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. There's going to be fine details and nuances within those words and how they're defined in the original languages that differ from our modern understanding of the words and may even differ from the translation of the words that we get in our scriptures that we have today. So you've got to properly define the words. The next thing, find out what trustworthy people have said about the passage. Commentaries can be a help. I mean, there's many thousands of people who've written on the scriptures and who may have written on the very text that you're looking at. And you want to find out what the very best of them has said about them. And ask people you know. Ask people you know for sure that you trust. You might just want to hear somebody else's view on that, what you're looking at. The next one, consider everything deeply. We've looked at this word several times in our time together, and that's the word meditate. But that means you need to read carefully. You need to think about what you've read. 
You need to give yourself some time to consider it. Don't necessarily come to a conclusion immediately. Give yourself some time. Go over it a few more times to make sure that you understand. And then the last one is pray. Ask God to provide you with accuracy in what you're reading and what you're coming to understand. Ask him to clear your mind. Prepare your heart to understand what he's saying. I just want to give you a few words to sum it up. Tonight, our theme has been uh, study and education. I just want to say it again. Read the word of God carefully. Get all the information that you can. Ask all the important questions that you can think of to ask. And I'm going to say this. Do your homework. If it's not work, you're doing it wrong. There's just one last phrase that I've said for many years, and I, I think of it every time I do something like this, and that is, just remember this. The Bible means what it says. When I look at a lot of these passages, and you read them to other people, sometimes when you read them for yourself, you, you pass over it. When you read them to other people, you realize the significance and the import of the passage that you're reading. And you think to yourself, this is awfully serious. Many words in the Bible are awfully serious, but it means what it says. It doesn't mean what it doesn't say. I was listening to someone that I, that's a member of my family and they have a, their perspective is, is not right on some of these things. And, um, and they passed along a video, and it was someone with a long commentary about Christianity, and one that you distinctly and unequivocally do not find in the Bible. I mean, you don't find it. The words that were being said were nice. That seemed nice. Seems good. But the Bible does not mean what it does not say. Be careful about that. Let me tell you something else. It means exactly what it says. If you read the Bible and and you come to a conclusion and you say, can it be this simple? You know what, most of the time? It just often is. It often is that simple. There are occasions when the Bible forces you out of necessity to come to conclusions about it being an allegory of some sort, about it being uh, representative of something else. There are times when that happens. But let the scripture force you to do that. Don't you force the scripture to do that. Do you understand the difference? Bible means what it says, doesn't mean what it doesn't say, and it means exactly what it says. Study and education can learn a lot from Scripture. You can learn a lot from study. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We have uh, many responsibilities ourselves when it comes to your word. I know that we have um, opportunities to be taught here. 
We have many Bible studies that are available to us. We have many classes that are available to us. A lot of these folks are in, in Bible college in our presence tonight. There's nothing that really um, is better for us than going to the Word ourselves, studying for ourselves. And you've given us so many great tools. It's a wonderful thing to be able to have what we have. Help us to go to it. Whatever things we come across that are difficult, that are hard, help us to just work through them. Give us enlightenment. Give us clear minds to know. And then just to accept. Because there's hard things you want us to accept from your word. Help us to do that, to accept them. And then bless us through it. Help us to be like the, the person here in Psalm 119 who thought that studying your word and being obedient was just a delight and that was sweeter than anything else. Help us to have that feeling and have that experience. In Jesus' name, amen.